Glad to see all of you. I'm afraid I may be responsible for the rain that's falling. Um, we, my son had a soccer game yesterday, and we were walking across the field, and I said to my wife, wow, we really need some rain. Look how dry these fields are. So it might be my fault, but so what? We needed the rain, right? Sunday morning is always tough, right, when it rains, but we're so thankful that uh, you folks are here. If you're visiting today, welcome. We thank you for being here. I want to especially, again, as Pastor Monty already did, welcome uh, the Bear Foundation with us um, this morning. Thank you that they're able to be here. And like Monty said, uh, there are several folks in our church that are fostering and involved in that ministry. And uh, what I have been learning and, and just exposed to that more and more, there really are a variety of ways to get involved with that. And so I, I would encourage you, please stop by the table on your way out today and um, get to know them a little bit and find out uh, there may be a place for you to be able to, to help out a little bit. Um, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 24. This is the last time in Luke. So we're going to finish the book of Luke this morning. And uh, while you are turning there, I want to just mention a couple of other things that are coming up. Uh, April 30th is going to be our first Connect Group evening. And uh, that will be a Sunday night time. And uh, that is going to be through our adult Connect Groups. And so let me uh, encourage you to get involved with one of those and uh, if you are not currently involved with one, if you could uh, maybe find out uh, through the church office a place that you may be able to get involved in that, and we want to make sure that everybody uh, is aware of what is going on with our first Connect Night in just a couple of weeks, and that'll be a Sunday night, April 30th, and just encouraging all the Connect groups to get together and spend some time fellowshipping with one another. Um, also, uh, hopefully you're aware of this, I had the privilege of speaking and, and teaching the Berean class this morning. And um, to ask them the same question, I won't ask you to raise your hand as I did for them, uh, but we have started a monthly newsletter. We've been sending that out through email the last couple of months, and um, if you are not receiving that, it was a little, a little uh, uh, interesting to find out that several of the folks in the brand class had not been receiving that, and uh, so if you have not been getting those, if you could maybe email Margaret in the church office just so we can make sure that you are on that list and those things are coming out to you. Um, but that newsletter does a couple of things. For number one, it tells you some things that are upcoming, uh, gives you some information about things that we are planning and looking forward toward, but it also gives a month in review, uh, some of the things that have already happened in the previous month. Um, but also, I'm, I have uh, been writing a, uh, an article each month for that. We have a blog, which you can actually get to through our website. Um, if you're on our homepage, gracenc.org, at the top, there's a button that says blog. You can click on that. And uh, you can go and read the most excellent written blog articles you will ever read. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you find any typos, let me know because there's probably one or two that creep in. But um, just something that's on my heart this month is about hospitality. It's talking about the importance of fellowship. And so I would encourage you, if you have not yet had opportunity to read that, they're short, brief articles, uh, but if you could go out and take a look at that. One other thing that I want to mention, this has been on my heart for a while and just really haven't gotten it on the schedule um, but on May the 21st and May the 28th in our evening service, um, I will be taking your questions. And uh, so let me encourage you to do this. I do not, I won't answer any on the fly. Um, and so what I would like to encourage you to do is if you could submit those questions to me uh, by May 15th, that gives me a couple of weeks to look at those and compile those and answer questions that you, may have, that you may have. It can be anything about theology. It can be anything about our church. It can be anything 
that you want, understanding that I don't know is an honest answer, okay? If I don't know, I will research it the best I can and come back with the best answer that I can uh, sort of come up with, and, and I don't want to just answer something without thinking it through and, and studying it, so if you could get those to me, um, that would be great, and I've done that um, in other places where I've, where I've ministered, and it's been very, very successful, and so hopefully um, that can be a help to you as well. Luke chapter 24, as Pastor West mentioned, this is sort of still the Easter season, and uh, so we are going to wind down our study of the book of Luke as we look at this final section um, in this book. I want to read another verse for you. This is found in 1 John chapter 5, where John writes this, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I love that word, know. John says, I have written to these things to you that you may know for sure that you have eternal life. One of the things I've been thinking about and praying about this week as I've studied through this passage, and one of the things that I think we we see um, after the resurrection is one of the One of the things that strikes me as you read through the final verses of Luke and even the other Gospels is that even though the resurrection has happened, how quickly doubt and skepticism begin to creep into the minds of even the disciples. Confidence and doubt cannot exist in the same heart. Doubt makes us skeptical, and skepticism leads us to inactivity, and inactivity leads to atrophy and decay. I will, this is one of those moments in my seminary education that I will never forget. One of the men that, have, that has impacted my life probably more than any other is uh, Tim Jordan. Uh, Tim was our pastor for, for, for uh, several years while we were in seminary, pastor still in Calvary Lansdale, uh, just outside of Philadelphia. And he's just, if I could pick, if I had to pick one person who has impacted me the most, it's Tim. So all my warts and weird stuff I picked up from him. So uh, we could just blame him for that. But I will never forget, one of the things I always loved about Tim, and still to this day I love about Tim, I'll still call him from time to time when I'm in a spot like, ah, I've never been here before, what would you do? Um, I always appreciate his wisdom, but I always appreciated his candor. He was a guy that always just kind of told you the truth, whether you liked it or not. And I, call, and I will never forget this in a class that I had with him. He asked a question. He said, where does your mind go when doubt begins to creep into your mind? And the reason that struck me was because I had never heard a pastor remotely admit that he had moments of doubt, that he had moments of skepticism. And I remember him saying, you better find a place in your life that when you feel this this inkling of doubt, this inkling of skepticism that comes into your mind, you better have an answer for that, and you better have a place to go in your mind to think right and to make sure the truth stays in your heart. And I remember that day answering that question in my own life that the answer for me is anytime a moment of doubt comes into my life is the creation in which we live in definitely points to the fact that we serve an almighty God. But skepticism, doubt, 
I looked up skepticism on dictionary.com and found this definition. It is doubt or unbelief with regard to a religion, especially Christianity. You know any skeptics in your life? Do you know any doubters in your life? Do you struggle with doubt? On the first Easter Sunday morning, things got weird. The women who went to the tomb early that morning found an empty tomb. And immediately, doubt began to surface after the resurrection, and some of the early skeptics were the disciples. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, earlier, we studied this last week, then they returned from the tomb and told these things unto the eleven and to the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, and their words seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them. Luke, as we mentioned last week, used this word that is translated as idle. It means delirious speech. The disciples knew that Jesus had died on the cross. They knew that he was lying lifeless in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. These men were now defeated and fearful and in hiding. The day that Jesus was crucified was arguably the darkest day in the history of mankind. And despite the fact that men had manipulated the religious and uh, the political leaders, despite the cowardly actions of the political leadership, despite the evil intentions of God, God of people, God was still at work. God was still doing his miraculous work among mankind. And as we think about these early days, and despite the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, there was this immediate element of doubt. One of the most famous doubters came very soon in the name of Thomas. He's an illustration of this doubt and skepticism that sometimes lingers in our heart. Remember John 20 where John says this, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Yet eight days later, Jesus appeared to the disciples and demonstrated that his resurrection was true. And this time, Thomas was present. And after eight days, John writes, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst of them saying, Peace unto you. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. We weren't there. We didn't see the crucifixion. We didn't physically see the empty tomb. And sometimes being 2,000 years removed from that, we begin to think, well, if I had been there and seen this, then there would ever be no doubt in my life. And really, they had skepticism and doubt within a few hours. I have bad news. The next Easter Sunday for us is April 1st. 2018. 
I am lobbying to get that date changed. So far, it's not working. But what impact will Easter have on you for the next 11 months? Job said this in Job 19, verse 25. He said, for I know that my Redeemer lives. There was no ifs, no buts in this statement. This was a statement of confidence. I wonder this morning, do you have that kind of confidence? Or has doubt begun to creep into your life? Spurgeon wrote this. He said, doubts are dreary things in times of sorrow. Like wasps, they sting the soul. Is your soul stung this morning with doubt? Do you doubt God's presence in your life? Do you doubt God's power? Do you doubt God's goodness? Do you doubt God's love? Do you doubt God's mercy? And maybe even more importantly, do you doubt the resurrection? Pastor, this is a strange introduction, a room full of believers on a rainy morning. We're the faithful remnant that's here But I've been around long enough to know that doubt can become a reality for all of us. And in this post-resurrection text, our final one in the book of Luke, we find that failure becomes fulfillment and skepticism is turned into belief. Let's study this together this morning. Look with me at Luke chapter 24. Look at verse 13. It says this, And behold, two of them went the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs, And they talked together and all these things that had happened, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Verse 16 is what we call a divine passive, and that's just a fancy word to to say. Then in verse 16, it seems that the reason that they were not able to see this initially, the identification of Christ, was because God was withholding that from them. Verse 17, and he said to them, what manner of communications are these that you have had one to another as you walked and you are so sad? In other words, what are you talking about, Jesus asks them. What is it that has made you so downhearted? What is taking place? What has happened? Verse 18, and the one of them whose name was Cleopas answering and said unto him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and has not known the things which have come to pass in these days? In other words, are you the only one who hasn't been watching the headlines? Are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who isn't aware of what took place of this crucifixion and all the events that have happened? In verse 19, he said unto them, what things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest, notice where they put blame, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him and condemned him to death and have crucified him. Now look at verse 21. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Notice they were saying, hey, our expectations, they were not met. We thought this was the one. Remember, they thought in their minds that the Messiah was going to come, overthrow Rome, and they were going to experience the kingdom blessings that they so longed for. And yet, here it is, three days later, and he is still dead. Look at verse 22, in their minds. Yea, 
And, and certain women also of our company made, a, made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it. Even so, the women had said, but him they saw not. And he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, and they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would be gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went, and he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass that as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to them to eat. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they said unto one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened the scriptures? And they arose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them saying, the Lord is risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking bread. Now what strikes me about this passage is this. We have this interaction, these two men traveling to Jerusalem, um, uh, excuse me, traveling to Emmaus, likely leaving Jerusalem after the celebration of the Passover. It was about a seven-mile journey that they were going to make. And as Jesus begins to speak with them, he rebukes them, and he expresses great disappointment. He calls them fools, But Jesus explains to them that it had been necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things in order for uh, these events to happen. But I want you to, here's what I want us to notice about this first section is, is, is very simply this. Jesus, in verse 27, takes them back to Scripture. He could, God could have, at that very moment, revealed Jesus to them And they could have seen Jesus for who he was. But instead, we have this record here that Luke gives us that what Jesus does is he takes them back to Scripture, verse 27. He began at Moses and all the prophets and began explaining to them what the Scriptures said concerning himself. You know, the first way that we can battle skepticism is that we can B, it can be defeated when we know and study Scripture. God doesn't reveal the identity of Jesus yet. Instead, he uses Scriptures to identify himself. And he takes them back, beginning at Moses, and he brings them through the prophets. And he begins to tell them that this was a part of God's plan. The crucifixion wasn't a parenthesis in that plan. It was God's intention to bring this Messiah and to allow him to die on the cross of Calvary. In fact, I I made a list I just have six. You can write these down if you want. We don't have time to look at all these. But I often wonder to myself, what verses did Jesus read? Actually, he didn't read them. He quoted them. What verses did Jesus use to show who he was? And I'll give you six, and I don't know 
for sure if these are the ones he used, but some to look at. Deuteronomy 18, 15, Psalm 2, 7, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, Psalm 110, Psalm 118, Isaiah 53. Those are just some possibilities. But whatever it was, he begins to explain to them all of these things that pointed to Christ. Then he sits with them at this meal, and their eyes are opened. As he begins to give them bread, he blesses it. It's the language that is reminiscent of the feeding of the 5,000. It's reminiscent of the Last Supper. And immediately, their eyes are opened. They recognize who Jesus was. And they even admit that, hey, our hearts were burning while he was talking. And then immediately, Jesus vanishes from them. Now, we learn later that as they return back to Jerusalem, that he had also appeared to Peter. But let's, let's apply this for a minute. Knowing the scriptures removes our doubt and turns our skepticism into faith. God has revealed himself today through the use of nouns, verbs, articles, participles, conjunctions, direct objects, indirect objects, objects, and adverbs. God has revealed himself to us In his word, if you are not consistently taking in a diet of God's word, my friend, you will perpetually struggle with doubt and skepticism. Do you have a plan of a consistent time of intake into your heart of the scripture? Do you have a time in your life, I've been studying this again in my own personal life and reading through this again, and making sure that when we talk about our time-crunched schedules and the way our culture lives, and we're so busy, and we're so running around, and we don't have time for this, don't have time for that, I don't have time for God's word, may I submit to you is because it's not a priority to you. And I don't mean that unkindly, but it's if we don't set that on our calendar every single day as if it is non-negotiable, I will be in Scripture. I will study God's Word. Jesus thought so much of the Scriptures that he defended himself to these men through the use of God's Word. And if we go days and weeks, and heaven forbid, months, and never study the scripture, you're going to struggle with doubt and skepticism. Because God's word gets into our souls, gets into our hearts, and infiltrates us and reminds us of those truths that we already, probably many of us know them already. A lot of the verses we can quote, we memorize them in Bible school, we memorize them as kids, and we, we went through all these things and we know them, but the reality is we don't often spend enough time in Scripture. So it's interesting to me that the skepticism of these men was immediately combated with the use of Scripture. And by the way, the unity of Scripture demonstrates the harmony of God's plan. It shows us that there was one story as God has written it to us and drawn our attention to it, that there's one story. That's why Jesus could start at Moses, go through the prophets, and point to himself. Let me give you a second way to fight and to defeat skepticism. Second way is that we are to remember the crucified Christ. We have this appearance of Christ. Look at verse um, 36. 
It says this, it says, And as they spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace unto you, be unto you. And they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do these thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit has no flesh and bones as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have you here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of honeycomb, and he took it and did eat it before them. Notice as Jesus appears to them, appears to these 11, he announces, first of all, peace to them, and their response is that they are afraid. There is fear that sets into them. And he asks them this question, why are you alarmed? Okay, why are you troubled? And in verse 33, and why do these thoughts arise in your hearts? My understanding of that is, why is there doubt in your heart? Why are you still experiencing doubt? In the midst of their doubt, Jesus encourages the disciples to look at his hands and look at his feet. And he tells them to touch me and to, to, to uh, handle me. Were they seeing a vision, they asked? Was it a spirit? But they were able to touch him. They were able to eat with him. This wasn't a spirit. Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. Now, here's what happens. Last week, we spent the last couple of weeks studying the crucifixion. We studied the resurrection last week. And and probably, if, if your house is like ours, there's probably a handful of decorations around the house, Easter decorations or whatever, and you're gonna put those away. But do we remember on a regular basis, the crucified Christ? More specifically, do we remember the risen Christ? Because remembering the crucifixion, remembering the resurrection, removes doubt and turns our skepticism into faith. Christ died so that we can live a life of confidence that is built on his finished work, the work that he accomplished on Calvary's cross. The scriptures remind us of the crucified Lord. And for us as a church, I think that is why when, when God left for us this picture of the Lord's Supper that we do each and every month, because it is a constant reminder to take our minds back to the crucifixion, to take our minds back to the resurrection, and to be reminded of who Christ is. And so often, I'm afraid we forget. We don't contemplate what Christ has done for us. We don't think through the crucifixion. We don't allow that to enter into our daily living and into our minds and into our thinking. And doubt and skepticism can become a reality to us. Let me give you a third way to uh, battle our skepticism and doubt, and that is by living out our calling. Notice verse 44, and he said to them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled and were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Notice he takes them again back to scripture. These are the things that have already been written about me, and he covers really the whole Old Testament. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, which include the wisdom literature, 
All these things were concerning, Jesus says, me. Then he opened their understanding that they may understand the scriptures. Notice, again, coming back to the scripture, coming back to the word of God, and said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it is And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with the power on high, or the Holy Spirit, which would initiate the church at the day of Pentecost. As Jesus eats with them, he takes them back to Scripture, as we already mentioned. He explains to them how the Scriptures have been fulfilled in his life. It's kind of an intensive seminary education, if you will. Here's the word. Here's what it means. Here's what applies. It applies to me. And he walks them through these scriptures, much like an Old Testament prophet would have explained God's plan. And the the disciples had struggled with seeing how suffering fit into God's plan. But Jesus is demonstrating to them that this was all a part of God's plan all the way back at the time of creation. And he wanted them to understand these things. He wanted them to understand the scriptures because he says to them, You are to now take this information and you are to be proclaiming the truth of the gospel to all people. Now, here's the problem. When we are in doubt, I doubt whether or not God's good. I doubt whether or not God is present in my life. I doubt whether or not God loves me. I doubt whether or not God is really concerned about me. Or if we go to the end extreme that we started with, if I doubt even the resurrection, you'll never be an effective witness for Christ. How how can we, as the believers in Christ, how can we be effective witnesses and effective ministers and effectively taking the gospel and proclaiming it to other people if we are bogged down in doubt, if we are bogged down in skepticism? The disciples were called to the world, were called to, were, the disciples were to call the world to respond to the message of the gospel. They were to call people to repentance. They were to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people would understand the gospel and they would repent of their sins. You see, living out our calling removes our doubt and turns our skepticism into faith. Serving Christ and seeing the gospel change the lives of other people reminds us of the power and the validity of the gospel. Have you ever had the privilege of seeing somebody struggle in their lives and they are just, their lives are a wreck. And, and maybe they proclaim to know Christ and so you, you, know, you start, you go through the gospel and they say that they believe that. And so you work through the salvation thing and then you begin to take the scripture, not your opinion, but, your, but the scripture and begin to teach it to them and instruct them and encourage them about what God says about the issue that they are facing in their life. 
And sometimes, those of us that have a, the opportunity to do this on a regular basis, sometimes people say this, well, I don't believe that's going to work. And you say, well, humor me. So what God said, this isn't my opinion. Let me give you an illustration. Love your enemies. Go out and show your enemies kindness and love and compassion. That'll never work. Never work. And they go out and they begin to obey God and they love their enemies. They show compassion to their enemies. And lo and behold, God begins to change them and grow them. The enemy may never change, but they begin to grow and change and they begin to have compassion and they begin to have a loving heart. And you can see the scriptures coming alive in them. Well, imagine if you're the one giving the counsel and you're sitting there saying to yourself, you know, you ought to love your wife as Christ loved the church, you know, but I don't really believe that. You're not going to have a lot of confidence to speak that into the life of somebody else. Do you really believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes unto the Father but by him? Do you really believe that? Because if I don't really believe that myself, I'm never going to take that with compassion and teach it to other people. And I'm of the, of the opinion that what Jesus is doing in, in, in a sense of creating this, this doubt in their minds and allowing this doubt to fester a little bit is so that he can show them with great certainty who he is so that when they leave his presence and he goes he ascends in a moment back to his father that they will leave these interactions so convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life that they will willingly proclaim this message of salvation even if it means dying for the cause, which many of them did. And so the skepticism is defeated by our living out our calling. If we are faithful in proclaiming God's word and faithfully reaching out to others, it will help defeat skepticism and unbelief in our lives. Fourthly and lastly, skepticism is defeated by worshiping Christ. Notice what happens. After he gives this instruction to them, verse 50, and he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he, he, he was parted from them and carried up to heaven. And they worshiped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. And Luke ends his gospel with the word, amen. Jesus takes them as far as Bethany. He blesses them and he departs from them. And as these disciples see and watch Jesus, they begin to worship him. The worshiping of Christ by the disciples demonstrates they understood him as deity. Even in Thomas's declaration, my God, you, Jesus, my God, this declaration that he was deity. And Jesus, seeing him, they worshiped him. And notice that as they begin to worship their fear and their doubt is turned to great joy. One of the things that as believers that we want doubt and skepticism to be removed from our lives, we have to be consistently worshiping Christ. It seems that one of the easiest ways to allow doubt and skepticism to creep into our lives is to isolate ourselves and to refuse to consistently worship God. That worship isn't just corporate. That worship is also individual. 
setting aside that time, making sure every day that I'm in Scripture, I'm listening to music that draws my heart to Christ. It's worshipful in nature, helps me think and dwell on who God is, and it draws my heart to the truths of God's word, and and it's drawing me closer to him, and I'm privately worshiping, and then coming to this place of fellowship with other believers to lift our voices uh, in unity to worship God and to study God's word together and to be a part of the body. That is essential for us to remain spiritually healthy. But here's what often happens. If you don't do this, I would encourage you to do this. Do you sit down at some point through the course of your week and plan out your week? Do you have a schedule? Do you think through, this is what I'm going to do this day, this is where I'm going to be, this is what I'm going to do? You know, at some point in that day, in that daily schedule, there should be a non-negotiable time with God for personal study, personal worship, non-negotiable, unless sovereignly and through the providence of God, that has changed. But a second thing that should be inserted on that calendar is corporate worship. Non-negotiable, essential. Unless I'm sovereignly or providentially hindered that the worship together with God's people is essential for me to stay connected to the body, connected to Christ, connected to these things so that I am not given into the temptation to doubt. As Christians, we are not to be passive or to be active in pursuing our relationship with Christ. We are to be, as these disciples were, joyful, filled with thanksgiving. While some people may be skeptical today of the resurrection, there is little indication that the skeptics in the first century Jerusalem questioned the historicity of the resurrection. Even those who would love to have demolished the rumor of the resurrection conceded the fact that the tomb was empty, historically proven and demonstrated that Jesus rose from the dead. One of the verses that I would that I would leave us with as we think about the ramifications of the resurrection and the ramifications of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is this. The church did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the church. It's not a fictitious event imagined by a group of people. By the way, we don't have time to get into this this morning, but if you were a disciple, and we know that the Romans put the guards outside of the tomb, he says, the text tells us in in, in one of the other gospels that they did that because they feared that somebody would come in and steal the body. If the disciples had broken into the tomb and stolen the body, wouldn't they have been out pronouncing, see, he rose from the dead, he's gone. Instead, they're running in fear and doubt and confusion because they are still processing the reality, the historicity of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, 
They gave their lives in sacrificial service and proclaiming that message, and many of them, even to the place that they lost their own lives, the resurrection wasn't the creation of man. It wasn't the creation of a religion. It wasn't the creation of the church. The resurrection created the church, and we, as believers, are given the responsibility to proclaim that truth. Peter put it this way. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10 says this, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's us. The believers who saw the risen Christ with their own eyes and touched him with their hands, invested the rest of their lives in proclaiming the resurrection. Folks, there's no reason to doubt. There's no reason to live a life of skepticism. Jesus isn't dead. When he arose from the grave, he guaranteed for you the reality of salvation. And 2,000 years later, the resurrection still points us to the hope of our eternal salvation. The resurrected Lord is deserving of our praise and our worship and our service and our trust. Skepticism is defeated when we know the word. Remember the crucified Christ. Live out our calling and worship Jesus. You know, you know what we're saying to God when we doubt him? We are saying he lacks the character to tell the truth. Imagine imagine you constantly telling your spouse that you love them. And they consistently reject that statement. That would be hurtful, wouldn't it? And when God says to us, I love you, I care about you, I will take care of you, life won't play out exactly as you want, but you can trust me. But when we doubt and we cave to skepticism, we are saying that God is a liar and that his character can't be trusted. Skepticism can become faith when we accept God's presence, God's plan, and his preeminence in the world. We all have those moments of doubt, at least the temptation. And yet in scripture, we see proven again and again the realities of the resurrection. So I pray for all of us that we would live with confidence, not doubt, not skepticism, that our Lord is risen. And he's coming again. Let's pray.